Hi, this is Sarah, and welcome to the Sketchy Folk Podcast. So, hello again, and welcome to the second episode of the Sketchy Folk Podcast. The first episode was about Chuck Jones, a cartoonist, a really fun guy. He made animated shorts and whatnot. Um, He's known for making Marvin the Martian, and he drew a lot of cartoons with Bugs Bunny, and um, created Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Super fun. This, by contrast, is going to be a little bit of a downer. We're taking a sharp tumble downhill, but he's still a super important artist and one that I want to cover. So today, I am going to tell you about an artist named Jean-Michel Basquiat. So Jean-Michel Basquiat is an artist from the 80s. Um, He is most known for his kind of street art inspired paintings. His artwork is really interesting to look at. If you see a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting, honestly, it's probably kind of the type of artwork that you would walk through a museum and hear somebody behind you say, Ugh, my kid could paint that and then they would make all this money and I don't understand why it's so great. And then you can just roll your eyes at those people. It's not worth it to gripe at them. But now you get to know the cool history of Jean-Michel Basquiat and why his art is the way it was. So obviously if you are driving, please do not look up his artwork yet. But if you have a minute, you should absolutely look up some examples of his work. It was really great, really interesting stuff. He did a lot of relatively large paintings that involved lots of kind of sketchy figures, stick people, um, crowns, like a crown you'd put on a king, not like crayons, were a relatively common motif in his artwork. He would put in words and things like that. There were a lot of bright colors, really sharp contrast. It was some pretty interesting stuff. So, a couple quotes just to get things going and kind of help get you into the the vibe of who Jean-Michel Basquiat was. Um, I've got a couple of quotes from him. So first, a quote he had that I feel really encapsulates who he was pretty well is, Believe it or not, I can actually draw. Which makes me chuckle. That actually reminds me quite a bit of the work of Pablo Picasso, where one of my favorite activities to do with my students is to show them a self-portrait he did when he was, I think it's like 16, one when he was 25, and one when he was like 50. And it almost, if you ask them, they assume it went backwards, where it's like, well, the one from when he's 50 is really, I mean, it's abstract, but to them it just looks bad. And then the one when he was like 16 or 18 or whatever it was, is extremely photorealistic. So I kind of get a bit of that kind of a thing from that quote. I'm really eloquent so far. Can't you tell? Okay. The second quote I have from him, and these are all super short. The second quote is, if you can't figure it out, it's your problem. Which, sure. (laughs) I guess that's kind of an interesting perspective about a lot of artwork. And I think one that could help a lot of people when it comes to making artwork is... Make what you want to make and let other people figure it out sometimes. There are times where it's helpful to do things a little more deliberately, but that was certainly not his goal. 
And the third quote I have is, I paint ghosts. So let's go ahead and get right into the story of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Basquiat was born in Brooklyn, New York on December 22nd of 1960. He was the second of four children, but his older brother passed away before he was born. So even though he technically wasn't the oldest, he kind of grew up with the responsibilities and everything of being the oldest child. So his mother, Mathilde, was of Puerto Rican descent, and his father, Gerard, was from Haiti. As a child, Basquiat found himself really able to pick things up. He could, uh, not like off the street, like he, he was able to gain skills and develop them fairly quickly. He could read and write by the age of four, and people saw skill in his artwork at a really young age. So he was kind of that kid that was sort of good at everything to a certain extent. His mother especially encouraged his artistic pursuits. She was really um, instrumental in making sure that he had access to resources that could help him get better. She encouraged him to practice, practice, practice. Um, She was always a positive voice in his ear, which just makes such a huge difference. If you ever, ever in your life, and I'm serious about this, have had someone tell you that your artwork is bad, that person can suck it. Not the most kind way of saying it, perhaps, but ugh, that makes me mad. Anyway, she was great. She would take him on excursions to New York City art museums. She enrolled him as a junior member of the Brooklyn Art Museum, or I'm sorry, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and his teachers noticed his skill as well, and they also worked with encouraging his pursuit of being an artist. In 1967, Basquiat began attending St. Anne's School, which was an art-based private school, which sounds awesome. It sounds like he's on the road to greatness, which he kind of was, but his road took a couple turns. So in 1968, so just a year after he joined this art-based private school, he was playing in the street and he was hit by a car. His recovery took a long time, and while he was resting, his mother brought him a copy of Gray's Anatomy, which influenced his artistic perspective later on. Just to clarify, I don't mean the TV show Grey's Anatomy. I mean the medical textbook, um, which goes into a lot of anatomy and things like that. (laughs) That year, his parents unfortunately separated, and his sisters went to live with his father. So Basquiat lived in Brooklyn for five years, and then Basquiat and his mother moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then they returned to New York after two years. So they were kind of all over the place. When Basquiat was 13, his mother was committed to a mental institution for the first time. I wasn't able to find a specific reason why that was the case, so um, I'm not sure what kind of mental health situation she might have been dealing with, but she was in an institution trying to get help. Um, She spent the next couple of years moving in and out of these, but the lack of stability was really hard for Basquiat. He'd been moving all over the place. His mom keeps going in and out of these institutions. And so he ended up running away from home at the age of 15. Within a week, though, he was arrested when he was found sleeping on a park bench and was returned and was returned to the care of his father. So as you might expect, the transition to living with his father now for this teenage boy did not go well. He dropped out of school in 10th grade, and he was at the age of 17 at this point. Um, He was forced to attend a thing called City As School, which was an alternative high school. Um, It was generally attended, from what I could find, by artistic students who 
just weren't doing super hot in a typical school setting. So one thing you have to kind of keep in mind is right now it's easy to imagine, or not imagine, right now New York is this really artsy, nice city where the rich people go and everything's really fancy and expensive. Um, I know when my sister and I took a road trip out there a few years ago, we actually ended up coming back a little bit early because we kind of ran out of money. Um, and we were not like going crazy or anything. It was just really expensive there. Anyway, um, but New York City at this time was not that. We're now in like the late 60s, early 70s. And it was, I have in my notes, it was more akin to Gotham. <laughs> like it was really crime laden and kind of just a sketchy area to be. So Basquiat's father was livid at him for dropping out of school. So he kicked him out of the house, which obviously doesn't seem like it's going to help, but I can't speak for him. That's all I can say. Basquiat turned to his friends for a place to stay. Fortunately, he had good friends that he could rely on. Um, And he started making money by selling t-shirts and postcards that he would make. He had a friend named Al Diaz, And in 1976, they began spraying graffiti on buildings under the pseudonym SAMO, S-A-M-O. This graffiti featured drawings along with poems and political statements, all tagged with their quote-unquote name. And within the artistic scene, SAMO was well-known. So people were really familiar with this tag that kept popping up all over the place, and it kind of gained more notoriety because they weren't just writing the name. They were adding these political statements. They were adding like poems and things like that. And so people started to really follow to see what they were saying. So two artists basically put on a party in this loft in April of 1979. And then here's the quote about this party. So it was a way of bringing uptown hip hop to the downtown art crowd. Before the party started, Holman remembers, this kid turned up and said he wanted to be in the show. Holman didn't know him, but People with that kind of energy, you never stand in their way. You just say, yes, go. They set up a large piece of photo paper, and Basquiat started spraying it with a can of red paint. He wrote, which of the following is omnipresent? And he spelled it O-M-N-I-P-R-Z-N-T. A, Lee Harvey Oswald. B, Coca-Cola logo. C, General Melonry. Or D, Samo. And we all went, oh my God, this is Samo, said Holman. So... That story from this guy who was at this party, to me sounds not quite equivalent, but almost equivalent to if Banksy went to a party and all of a sudden just revealed who he was. So it was a huge moment for um, Basquiat and his friend Aldiaz to reveal that they were the ones behind this tag and all these statements. So that was kind of the first real introduction to um, the artistic crowd that they had. In 1978, a man named Harvey Rusek found Basquiat spraying graffiti on a building, but rather than report him, he offered him a job. So Rusek was the founder of a clothing brand named Unique, and Basquiat worked in their art department for a short time after that meeting. In 1979, he was experimenting a lot with this rock band. They played at Arlene Schloss's open space called Wednesdays at A's, and all while still making his artwork. So his work began to evolve, 
and it showed a lot of heavily stylized characters. He added a lot of texture and words and images, and he kind of distilled all of that into one kind of uniform and complex image. So it wasn't a scene per se, it was just a lot of things kind of put together into a cohesive image. Um, again, just when you have a minute, Google it and look at it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The basis of his work was often political and related commonly to his experience in the world and the dichotomies that exist within our lifetimes. His style often took on the look of scribbling, including primitive characters, crowns, heads, and text. One of the things that is absolutely astounding to me about his story is this tale of his first painting he sold. So in June of 1980, Basquiat displayed artwork in the Times Square show where he was noticed by several collectors and curators. At this show, he sold his first painting in 1981. So, um, honestly, I'm not 100% sure if it was the first, like, canvas painting he sold or if it was just the first painting he sold at a show. But this painting sold for $25,000. Just utterly baffling. He was invited by one of these curators and collectors to have his first solo show in Modena, Italy. <laughs> so he went from his first show to selling a painting for $25,000 and having a solo show, which is insane on its own, in Modena, Italy, which I guess living in New York, you might have a few more opportunities, but I can't even imagine someone finding me out of the blue and wanting me to have a show in like the downtown Columbus, like capital of Ohio, let alone in another country. Anyway, so his first solo show opened on May 31st of 1981. His artwork mainly centered around paintings on found objects. So he would go find a board and paint on it, or he would go find like a door and paint on it. Um, as this is what he could afford when he first started out. So even though he just sold that painting for a ton, he didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't afford a bunch of canvas and paint and stuff. And he decided that his work service was not going to be the priority, basically. So Basquiat's girlfriend at the time was a bartender. And when they first met, she thought he was homeless based on his dress and behavior. So here again, it's another interesting story from her about just the dramatic and hugely swift shift in his life and lifestyle so she says he wouldn't come to the bar because he had no money for drinks but then after two weeks he came in put a load of change down and bought the most expensive drink in the place remy martin seven dollars within eight months there was money everywhere i watched him sell his first painting to deborah harry for two hundred dollars and then a few months later he was selling paintings for two twenty thousand dollars each selling them faster than he could paint them i watched him make his first million we went from stealing bread on the way home from the mud club and eating pasta to buy groceries at Dean and DeLuca. The fridge was full of pastries and caviar. We were drinking Cristal champagne. We were 21 years old. Basquiat would leave piles of cash around their apartment, buy Armani suits by the dozen, throw parties with hills of cocaine. His rise coincided with a shift in the city. Financiers were looking to invest in art, and they were cruising around art shows snapping up new work. So... Her story really paints the picture of how quickly his life went from barely being able to afford to buy food in a restaurant to, like she said, having caviar in their fridge and leaving piles of cash everywhere, which for anybody is just going to be a really tough transition, even though it's a, 
mm, I'm going to say a positive transition. That's the opportunity to be a positive transition. Uh, that's just so much for someone to go through. So in early 1982, Basquiat was introduced to Andy Warhol. And right after their meeting, Basquiat created a portrait of himself and Warhol and had it sent to the artist while it was still wet. And they went on to collaborate several times. In March of 1982, he had his second Italian exhibition and he painted in Modena to prepare for it. So he had this habit of basically getting signed on to do an exhibition and not really painting anything ahead of time. So it's kind of like if you ever, like if you're in school and you have a presentation you have to do, you don't do anything ahead of time. You just kind of, the morning you show up to school, pick up a bunch of stuff in the hallway and somehow magically make this presentation work. So he would fly to the city where the exhibition was happening a couple weeks early, and then he would just make paintings in that location like crazy. He would paint up to 20 different paintings in just three weeks. So to me, that's insane. But that's what he did. So after this, he moved to his own studio space in Venice, California, where he started paintings for another show that was set to um, start in 1983. The man who owned the Venice, California studio space recalls. So this is his tail. Everything was going along fine. Jean-Michel was making paintings, I was selling them, and we were having a lot of fun. But then one day Jean-Michel said, my girlfriend's coming to stay with me. I was a little concerned. One too many eggs can spoil an omelet, you know. So I said, well, what's she like? And he said, her name is Madonna and she's going to be huge. I'll never forget that he said that. So Madonna came and stayed for a few months and we got along like one big happy family. So it's fascinating that he found Madonna and was dating her um, before she was even the big name that she is now. So his time was dotted with run-ins and collaborations with other well-known artists. Like I said, he worked quite a bit with Andy Warhol. Um, he visited and took inspiration from Robert Rauschenberg. Um, he shared an exhibition with Keith Haring and Barbara Kruger. Then he worked with musicians named Ramelzy and K-Rob. I'm sorry if I'm saying those wrong. Sorry if and when I say everything wrong. It's not uncommon. So, and these are all really big names in the art world. So he, again, just went from kind of not much to everything all at once. Despite his rising success, um, he often sold every single painting at his exhibitions. He had trouble with art critics and the world around that whole um, culture. So even though he sold all these paintings, his work was often looked down upon because he wasn't formally trained, and he had started as a graffiti artist. One friend told a story about how he would often leave these incredibly successful exhibitions and then find it impossible to find a cab ride home just because he was a black man, which is so beyond heartbreaking, infuriating, I can't even begin. And so... He just had a lot of juxtaposition in his life and being really successful in one area and then having to face struggles just like everybody else in other areas. By late 1983, Basquiat was known for painting in pricey Armani suits. His public appearances were unique um, because he would wear these, again, super expensive suits, but they were just covered in paint. <laughs> um, he fit in well with the wild and eclectic East Village um, and the art scene in New York, but unfortunately, this connection also brought him to drugs, which I did mention before. In 1985, 
he had a, a joint show with Andy Warhol, for which he thought he was finally going to get the critical acclaim that he was working towards, and honestly, he thought he deserved. But instead, the critics tore the show to shreds. Um, then the next year, he had his choice of galleries at which to show, and he was featured in the cover story of a New York Times magazine issue with an article titled, New Art, New Money, The Marketing of an American Artist, which is an interesting kind of take on his work because it was a little bit of a mar- marketing situation. Um, but I don't feel that that diminishes the work he did at all. Um, he was still appreciated by loads of people, but those that fell on the other side of the coin were really loud. It seemed like the people that weren't a fan were the ones that had the microphone or had the publishing deal or had the spot in the newspaper. And he just really struggled to drown out what those people had to say. So in 1987, Andy Warhol passed away and Basquiat kind of pulled back even further from the art community. He explored the idea of veering away from painting and toward music or writing. He tried to go sober. Friends reported that when he returned from a trip to Hawaii and he tried to straighten things out while he was there, but when he got back, he seemed even more off than before. So on the 12th of August, 1988, Basquiat had been struggling with this whole situation, having confidence in his artwork, um, drug problems, dealing with critics and selling his artwork and um, the racial prejudice that was just rampant in New York at the time. Um, At some point during that day, he had taken drugs. People know that for sure. Obviously, this story is not going somewhere great. Um, Friends wanted him to attend a party, and he went. He agreed, but he didn't stay very long and returned home shortly afterwards. He had a friend named Kevin Bray that had gone home with him, but Basquiat was drifting off to sleep or had gone into another room or something, and Bray had written a note that just said, I don't want to sit here and watch you die, and he left. Basquiat's girlfriend stopped by his apartment at 5.30 p.m. the next day and unfortunately found his body. He had died of an accidental heroin overdose at the age of 27. So, even though it's kind of nonsense, I'm just going to mention conspiracy theorists add him to the 27 Club, which is a macabre list of immensely successful artists who all died when they were 27. On this list are people such as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse. So a lot of people, honestly right around that time anyway, were passing away right at that age. So I think if anything that says a lot about the culture around art at that time, which is unfortunate. Keith Haring, who like I mentioned before is a crazy successful and well-known artist from the 80s. His parting statement about Basquiat is as follows. He truly created a lifetime of work in 10 years. Greedily, we wonder what else he might have created, what masterpieces we might have been cheated out of by his death. But the fact is that he has created enough work to intrigue generations to come. Only now will people begin to understand the magnitude of his contribution. I think Keith Haring said that all very well. Basquiat was not here nearly long enough. It's so heartbreaking, kind of the turn his life took. But his artwork had a huge impact on the art community and the way people continued to make artwork from then on. And even to this day, people are still analyzing and appreciating the work that he did. So 
it might seem like Herring said a little bit selfish to look at his life and his work and try to glean something of it for ourselves but I do think it's worth it to kind of reiterate that point that what someone else thinks of your artwork isn't irrelevant but it shouldn't be everything to you so whether it be a teacher that tells you your drawing isn't good enough or a parent that tells you that you shouldn't be making artwork you should be trying to be a lawyer or whatever or an art critic telling you that your work isn't worth being in a show if you are happy making your artwork then that's what's most important I want you to go on later today and make some kind of artwork with as little concern of what other people are thinking about it as you can muster. You can do it. I believe in you. You got this. So I will say that if you or anyone you know is dealing with um, issues with depression or drugs, I know there are a multitude of resources online, so please don't hesitate to reach out and get them or yourself the help that they or you need because you're loved, you're worth it, um, you deserve to have the best life you can have. Don't be afraid to get the help that you need. All of that said, this week's art challenge or daily art challenge is as follows. Day one is city, day two is coffee, day three is brick, day four is crown, and day five is squint. So follow me on Sketchy Folk Podcast on Instagram. Tag me in any artwork that you do for the daily challenge. I will be uploading a new episode every week. And thank you for listening. I guess we're gonna we're gonna say it again. My husband will be proud because I guess I've got I don't have a better idea. So Catch you later. (laughs) Bye.